you are not a good leader and you're not even a good friend if you allow your fear to make you avoid difficult situations. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of leadership and practical love for competitive advantage. Please share this episode with a friend and help us to spread the love and action movement globally. This is gonna be an interesting conversation. Then here's why I say that. I say interesting because, well, I've been in some sticky situations in previous corporate roles and management and HR, and you know, because of that's my background, where I shrunk back from rising up to the occasion to challenge somebody's bad decision. In this case, my example, it was a a previous CEO who did something totally unacceptable. And well, I didn't have the courage to stand up to this person and, you know, call him on his actions. I let fear seep in. And I'm telling you, it cost me big time. These days, challenging a boss like I tried to do, and I, I just had the wrong approach, or taking a stand against something that you know is wrong or unfair, like say, gender pay inequity. That's a big thing now. Or just, you know, making a tough decision that you know might be unpopular. All these things may be risky, right? You're thinking, oh man, is this going to cost me my reputation or at worst, my job? So what happens is we fail to act. And later we regret our decision like I did. And my guest today says, and I quote, what's so unfortunate is that we've largely accepted the notion that courageous action is only to be expected from extraordinary people in extraordinary situations, end quote. That's unfortunate because it's not just those people that we look up to and admire that are able to or have the ability to, you know, to be courageous because most ordinary people are capable of acting courageous when the chips are down. We just got to get over our own obstacles and have the right approaches, right, to being more brave. I'm talking today with Jim Dietert, professor at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business Administration. Jim is the world's foremost expert on workplace courage. I mean, he spent two decades researching the topic and, well, he discovered that courage is a skill that can be learned and developed over time by anybody. And I hope that you who are listening today can be convinced not only to act with more courage, but also if you're a leader, create the kind of courageous work culture that leads to positive outcomes. And we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff related to that. Jim is the author of a new book, Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And today we get to hear about things like why People speak up or stay silent at work or, you know, how to channel our emotions and take action with the right attitude and approach. And Jim is here. It's an honor to sit with you, sir. And for what I know, it's going to be a captivating conversation. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and have the conversation. 
Me too. So, you know, I get a lot of leadership books coming across my desk, Jim, but one that focuses strictly on workplace courage with all uh, with two decades of research to back it up is not one I get often, you know, uh, coming my way. So before we dive into your life's work and then talk about the research in the book, we start with a traditional question. You ready? Sure. What's your story? Wow. Well, since you probably don't want me to spend the whole episode on that, let me give you a very short example. I grew up actually in a small town, poor, single family, and I ended up studying business because I actually thought it was sort of a a way out. For a kid like me, you know, you didn't think about getting a PhD in sociology or English or whatever, where you weren't sure how you were going to make any money. You you looked to something like business, right, or engineering. But for me, a defining moment, so I did that, and and then I went to, I eventually went and, and did my PhD in organizational behavior at Harvard, and there was sort of a defining moment for me. In the first year, we took classes in sociology with the PhD students in sociology. And most of them had, you know, probably announced that they had, you know, gone to prep schools and then Harvard or Yale or Princeton and then spent a year at Oxford. And one day we were talking about something like social stratification and inequality, um, something that, frankly, I understood very personally and cared very deeply about. And somebody looked over at, at me and the two others from the organizational behavior program and said, well, you know, you guys over there in the evil empire don't care about this, but for us, and then, you know, sort of gave a little lecture. And the reason that was sort of a defining moment for me is in that moment, it really clarified for me because I had thought about like, why am I going to be in a business school? Why am I doing this? When in my heart of hearts, I'm sort of an applied psychologist, really a humanist. And for me, it clarified that I wanted to spend my life not just preaching to the choir. I wanted to talk about how to be a better human being, how to spend your life in a worthwhile fashion, how to treat people decently to the people who were in a school or in a career path where they didn't necessarily hear that and where they weren't even going to be open to that. And for me, that that moment back in grad school was really a solidifying moment of saying, the path I'm choosing will be harder because I'll have a lot of difficult conversations along the way. But I think if I want to have a chance to influence the way people with power behave, this is the right path. And that has really guided my career. You know, I I could teach standard leadership classes, but I don't. I teach a class called Defining Moments, which is only about the most challenging situations, you know, gender inequity, pay inequity, racism, you name it, because... I think those are the conversations we desperately need to be having. That's good, Jim. Okay, so you know how certain people are tied forever to the research that they do? Like, for example, Angela Duckworth, right? Will always be known for her work on grit, Brene Brown, vulnerability, Amy Edmondson, psychological safety. You're the courage guru, if I may call you that. (laughs) And so I guess we want to know, how did that come about? What are the origins of choosing workplace courage? Nobody else is doing that. Yeah, so sort of two things came together for me. So I actually was a student of Amy Edmondson, and my dissertation, therefore, was on why people speak up or not at work. And way back, you know, right around the 2000 mark, I was doing my dissertation. And what became clear quickly is when people feel safe, for the most part, they're willing to speak up. And when Mm. they don't feel safe, they stay silent. But there was way back in my dissertation, there was this small group of stories of folks who didn't feel safe, but nonetheless spoke up or took action. And I had sort of coded that as these are courageous acts. And then I set that aside for a long period of time, knowing I wanted to do something. Then I you know, started teaching year after year leadership courses. And at the end of every course, I would finish and say, well, we've learned lots of tools. If we had more time, we could learn more tools. 
But in the end, I don't think it would matter how, you know, how big your toolkit is. What's going to matter is when the critical moments arrive, are you willing to use those tools? And that's mm. going to be about courage. Yeah. And I would just give this speech for, you know, three or four minutes at the end of a long course. But the response was incredible. Over and over and over, people would write, you know, that's what we need a module on. That's what we need a course on. Why didn't we talk about that the whole quarter? And so the, after hearing that for a number of years, the sort of the confluence of knowing in the back of my mind that I had been essentially researching in some cases, courage or lack thereof, but also seeing so many students say, business school students, executive MBA students, executive audience saying, we need this. It just became clear that it was time to do some good social science on that and write something practical for people. So before we take a deep dive on the concepts and the research, okay, let's maybe um, give our listeners a, a working definition. Because when you take the words courage or workplace courage, I can think of 20 different things that might describe that. So in your own words, what would you, how would you describe it? And maybe give a few examples of that. So the first thing I, w- I would say is, Let's distinguish between the word courage and the adjective courageous. And let's talk about courageous acts or courageous behaviors. And the reason I think that's really important is that, you know, when we talk about courage, we end up saying like, oh, he's got courage. And that, I think, gets us into the mistake of saying, well, some people have some innate stock of courage or capability. But that's actually, if you think about it, quite silly, right? If you did an autopsy of somebody, you can't find courage in a person. So I think it's important to actually get away from the idea of courage and to talk about courageous acts. Okay. Because those are behaviors that any person is capable of choosing to do. Right. So what's a courageous act? Well, let's keep it simple. A courageous act at work is something you do for a worthy cause, what you think is worthy, ethical, moral, important principle, despite perceived risk. And those risks might be career economic, they might be social, they might be psychological. But Mm. at the simplest level, let's just talk about courageous acts as behaviors done for a worthy cause despite risk. And when you use a definition like that, and in fact, inductively, what I've seen in thousands and thousands of cases is there are lots of things in the kind of organizations we've created that feel courageous. You know, you mentioned speaking up to a boss and lots of behaviors around, you know, truth to power or defined power are courageous acts. But so are difficult conversations with peers. A lot of people report it's courageous just to tell the truth, to demote, to give a negative performance evaluation to a subordinate, making decisions that might anger customers, uh, clients, walking away from a supplier, a partner on principle. So there are lots of acts, some involving power, some not, that feel worthy, but also risky. I'm waiting for the right time to actually, because I kind of left you listeners hanging when I said I did confront previous boss. He wasn't my direct boss. He was the CEO. So I'm thinking I'll do it here just real quick for context, Jim. So tell me what you think about this. It was, I mean, this is going good to 10 years now ago when I was still doing a corporate grind. I was in a high level HR role, right? Talent development, talent management. And well, I was doing the exit interviews. So I'm looking at the data of the patterns of why people were leaving in mass droves at that time for a company that had 60, 65% turnover. I mean, they were bleeding money. So, well, I looked at the trends. Well, and sure enough, one of the top five reasons people were quitting pointed back to the CEO. Well, so what I did is I I brought it to my 
boss who reported to him. And my boss was, I believe at that time, he was a, he might've been a, a COO or, you know, just an operations, high level operations person. Well, he said he would take care of it and talk to him. What did he do instead? He threw me under the bus. And basically, the next thing I know is I'm in the CEO's office, right? The, <laughs> the culprit of this whole thing. That, and I now have to explain to him what my reports are saying that are telling me that, hey, uh, you're one of the top reasons why people are quitting. So I'm thinking this is a great opportunity for me to sit down with the CEO and have an honest conversation to help him grow as a leader and maybe perhaps talk about some good interventions, uh, bring in some good coaching, et cetera. Instead, here's the wrongdoing. He um, had an allergic reaction to that in a response that I never in my 20 years at the time of, of doing HR work imagined this would happen. <laughs> he asked for the names of the people <laughs> that exit interviews are 100% confidential, or at least we, most HR people want to keep it that way, right? And they go into a file in the vault somewhere. And, and, and then he wanted the names of people that basically ratted on him. And that's where I failed in my courage, out of fear for my job, out of fear for, I don't know, so many different things. I think that my, my brain at the time got hijacked by just complete fear. And as I walked back to my desk, the only thing I can think of at that time was, I just wrote my, resi my job resignation because I can't do this. Well, it ended up that I did it anyway out of fear. So that was the, one of the mistakes that I wish I could take back because I didn't have the courage to stand up to him and maybe even bring some peers and some other high-level people to rally around me to say, this is unacceptable. We, we can't breach confidentiality here. How is this going to speak to the workforce if they find out? Trust is going to go way down. So that's my story on, you know, looking back 10, 15 years ago, I wish that I could turn back the clock and, well, first is find out why, what kept me from stepping up and confronting and say, hey, this is not right. And we can help you be better, but this, we can't let this happen. And instead, by the way, Jim, he was a very intimidating person, very autocratic, my way or the highway type of person, right? And so I just shrunk back and gave him the names of the people. And then I had to do damage control because then I had to let the people know that that quit and had moved on, et cetera. I say, I'm so sorry, but I breached confidentiality. Those exit interviews where you and I had agreed to and, and that I promised confidentiality, well, that has been broken. So I had do damage control and felt like I burned bridges as well with those people that moved on from the company. And so it was, it was a really, it was a hot mess. So that's my story from there. I don't know if you want to bring this back in our conversation and in later examples, but I felt that that might be a good time to drop that little bomb for my listeners to know. Yeah. Thank you for that. And we can absolutely come back to it because there's four or five or six different sort of really critical elements of what I've learned that that story illustrates. And mm. so Okay, good. Why don't we keep good. going and, and we'll unpack it as we go. Awesome. All right. So talk a little bit about the research because I'm just so curious about the approach of how you collected the data. And I understand that you had lots, it, basically, it's, you just had people tell you stories about their situation, right? So I used all kinds of methods. In a lot of cases, I, yeah, I collected just very deep, rich stories, often from the actors him, you know, themselves. Sometimes I had, I chose for 
study reasons to ask people to report on somebody else's courageous act. Sometimes I actually combined both. I had somebody tell me a courageous act of somebody else, and then I interviewed the person, the actor, him or herself, and tried to understand the difference in perceptions and memories. I also surveyed thousands of people to really just try to understand, you know, what kinds of behaviors were at play, why people behave how they do, what skills seem to make a difference in how the acts go. You know, one of the things you mentioned, or is really clear in listening to you talk is, you know, the notion of regret. So I collected data related to both regret and legacy. You know, when sort of you sort of take a longer time horizon, you know, regrets are those things that sort of just keep sticking with us that we just keep saying, I wish I. And, you know, it turns out when you look at the regret literature that what's pretty clear is people don't tend to regret sort of courageous actions that don't go that well. You know, they don't, 10 years later, they don't say, well, I said the wrong words or things like that. What they tend to look back on with a lot of regret is I should have done X and I didn't. Um, I should have walked away. I should have said no. I should have quit. I should have defended that person in the moment. And, you know, the psychology seems to be that it's much harder for the brain to sort of rationalize away inaction than it is to forgive ourselves for, you know, unskilled action. And so, so I, I just collected data on all kinds of facets and it was really an inductive process. You know, as I would learn more, I would realize I didn't quite understand a certain aspect and then I would collect more data. Okay. So from a problem standpoint, before we go into all of these awesome strategies that you propose in your book, I want to know why courage seems to be in such short supply these days. I mean, what, what keeps us from being courageous, more courageous? Well, I think we have a combination of sort of, let's say, psychological factors and then sociological or societal factors. So, you know, psychologically, there's these four risks we talked about, right? For most of the study of courageous action, probably most of our sort of history, we talk a lot about physical fear, right? Most courage writing for the first 2000 years or whatever was about, you know, military exploits. And of course, we've always known that firefighters who tried to rescue 9-11 you know, victims were courageous. So we, so there's physical risk. And actually, there's still a lot of people today in a lot of jobs that face physical risk. Then there's the career economic risk. You know, that's what most people will immediately point to. I don't want to lose my job, get fired, yeah. lose chances for promotion, you know, whatever. And in hierarchical organizations, that's a reasonable fear. Yeah. But then there's also, I, I think for me, what was a bit surprising is how powerful these social risks are. I don't want to be isolated, excluded. I don't want to be the one everybody's talking about behind their back, uh, mm. be left out of the key meetings. And if you dig into it a little bit further, it makes a lot of sense. Like for most of our time on earth, we lived in very small, you know, tribes or clans or bands and physical survival was the task and you couldn't survive alone. And so if you got ostracized from your group, you were probably going to die. And so it's logical from an evolutionary standpoint, that we we still have a much stronger feeling and fear of being excluded than is sort of objectively true. So people are terrified of social isolation. And then there's psychological fears. You know, if you ask, for example, scientists, why don't you do more blue sky thinking? Why don't you try other kinds of things? What people will say is, I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to be embarrassed. Uh, I don't want to feel dumb in front of others. So there's all these risks and you put them all together. You know, yeah. it's, it's a big mountain to climb. And then, you know, when I say societal or sociological, think about the U.S. 
Union membership is down to, you know, something like less than 10%. 90-some percent of people are what we would call wage dependent. They must have a job, you know, employed by somebody else. And then we have a society where your health insurance is tied to your employer. Often your retirement is tied to your employer and a bunch of other perks are tied to your employer. So as long as we have a social structure that also says you lose your job, you're in big trouble. We've made the bar pretty high for people yeah. to take these risks. Yeah. So there, so there are a lot of legitimate reasons to be afraid. Yeah, there are. The reason that ties to the, my example, my story is is definitely the one that you say that, that we fear power, right? I think looking back, that's clearly was my motive to the point with that. Well, I fear power to the extent where I didn't act with courage, and but also here's the interesting thing is I realized that that company my personal values and I don't know if I can say personal code of morals, if you will, did not align with now what I saw was happening, right? And so I chose, I resigned from that position. Two weeks later, I was gone. But it's funny because that whole reason for me leaving was triggered by fearing power. (laughs) This CEO that was ruling through the iron fist. Anyway, so I just thought one of the reasons hits real close to home for me. Yeah, but you know, I mean, one thing I would say about them ourselves is that often the most courageous act is the willingness to leave. And it's not something, frankly, we talk about. And I think for the most part, people don't execute that decision enough. But, you know, look, in my, in my experience, if you have, for example, in your case, a boss who the whole reason you're going to talk to him is that the evidence is fairly overwhelming, right? Yeah. That he's a bully, that he's a problem. Yes, it's courageous. And yes, I think it's often the right thing to do to try to, in a skillful way, marshal evidence, suggest change. I mean, but sometimes, let's maybe a lot of the time, let's be honest that it's folly to think a person who's got power and isn't being held accountable and is a bully is going to change because you have one conversation with him or her. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned that. Yeah. And so let me tie this back to all of the stories that that you collected. And, 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 you know, the ones that were the most common, as I was reading your book, fell into a category that's that speaks to this exact thing. Right. And you call it truth to power. Expand on that a little bit about what how those findings came up. Yeah. So, again, when we started with a more inductive approach, we literally just started to say, tell me a story of courageous action, either in yourself or others. And and then we collected, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stories. And then we just coded them. And of course, one of the things we we coded for thematically were what was the type of behavior? And in a lot of cases, who was the target for the behavior? And it turned out that something like, you know, 75% of the stories that people just naturally told were these truth to power stories. And many involved direct bosses, right? About you want to point out strategic or or operating or process problems or interpersonal problems or ethical problems. Others involve what I call skip level. So, you know, your example, having to talk to your CEO, that's a skip level conversation, you know, two or more levels above yourself. Others involve not per se challenging the boss, him or herself, but doing other things that could anger the boss, like defending your subordinates or going to bat for your subordinates or taking the hit for them. So, it turns out there are just all sorts of different specific behaviors that could anger a defensive, insecure boss. So is it all worth it in the end if you do that, if you speak truth to power? That's ultimately, you know, the, the answer. That's the question each of us has to answer. I mean, I could spin that back to you and say, was it worth it? Are you glad you quit or do you wish you had stayed in that environment? I was 100% happier after I left. I just wish that I had the courage to stand up to the man. But anyway. 
Okay, so two things on that. So one, yeah. even if you study whistleblowers, right? And whistleblowers, you know, are folks who take their issue external. You know, they tell the media, government agency, whatever. Those folks, you know, it's well established they they tend to get clobbered, um, despite laws against retaliation. They tend to get clobbered emotionally and otherwise. Even they, after you know, losing their job, their career, sometimes their reputation, their friendship, sometimes their spouse, even they very strongly say, I would do it again. It just turns out that, you know, internally, we, we have a code that tells us what's right or wrong, who we are. And there seem to be very few people who, after standing up for who they are, or what they believe in, regret it in the long term. That doesn't mean it's not painful in the short term. Yeah. But long term regret is, I think, pretty rare. You know, your issue of, well, I wish I told. Yes. I think one thing that's important to distinguish there and I'll often tell people this, be clear about your objective. So if you decide like I'm going in to like, you know, blow the lid off X, be clear. Are you doing it because you actually truly believe you're going to change something? Or are you doing it because you just want to be authentic and get it off your chest and be able to say I did it or said it? Because the way you would go about that are probably quite different. If you if you were just going to give your, you know, your FU speech to your boss on the way out the door, then the whole latter half of my book is not relevant <laughs> exactly because exactly how you say it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I did the FU speech to myself, you know, in front of the mirror afterwards. But So I want to give uh, you listeners some good practical strategies and a guide to how to be com- completely courageous. And Jim and I are going to go over that after a quick break. Hang tight. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. If you haven't heard, my leadership development course is now in full swing and it's getting great reviews. It's called From Boss to Leader. And if you like the theme of the podcast, you're going to love this course. It's intended for leaders and managers that want to learn real leadership competencies. You know, the everyday stuff that you need to engage and inspire your team or company. To learn more about the From Boss to Leader course, you can visit my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on virtual training. So, Jim, let's say that, you know, you're a leader and you're faced with a challenging situation, like I had to face up to the CEO. And, And so leaders have so many things coming their way now, right? I mean, we're still kind of almost out of this pandemic, some of us are are going into hybrid work settings, et cetera. And there's a lot of challenges. And and it may may be that your team is not performing up to par because of uh, remote settings, or maybe they just they're discouraged by so many transitions over the last year and a half. Or it could be more drastic, like perhaps confronting sexual harassment and have to face the perpetrator. So or in my case, you know, confronting a boss that is just off the hinges. So whatever that is for you, we need to have a game plan. And you write about the importance of creating the right environment. Break that down for us. Yeah. So it, it's common when people think about, you know, these courageous moments to focus on the moment itself, right? Well, we're in this setting and he said this, and then this happened and right, we focus on the moment. And even when we're preparing, we, we think about the moment, like, what am I going to say? And that's obviously important. But what's also really important, and I think underattended to, is what we do ahead of time. So, for the majority of folks, you know, listening here, they've been working someplace for some significant period of time. And 
before any particular moment happens, they either are doing or not doing things that are going to make a difference, a big difference in how those defining moment acts go. So to, to say it most simply, you can think about just two dimensions, warmth and competence. So anytime you say to somebody, right, whether it's a coworker, hey, I'm struggling with your attitude or work, you know, effort or, or production or a boss. Hey, boss, I think, you know, we could be better if what happens sort of very automatically is two impressions are formed by that target. One, you know, so Marcel's come in and said this to me. One, why is he saying it? Is he selfish? Is this all about he wants something more, better for himself, his unit, whatever? Is this all about him? And is he actually hoping to see me undermined, fail, et cetera? Or does he really care about me, us, how we're going to do going forward? So that's the sort of warmth dimension is long before we often take those specific acts, people have decided based on how we behave day in, day out, why would you be coming to me with this? Are you benevolent toward me or not? The second thing they're asking themselves is, are you competent? So if you go in and say, hey, I think we need to, I need this many resources, this many people, and I want us to try a whole new market or change something entirely from the status quo. They're going to ask themselves, well, can this guy pull it off? <laughs> if I give him all these resources, if I change strategy or direction, is this going to work? And so there's so many things we do day in, day out. You know, what we say in meetings when we're not the focal actor, or we're not, you know, pushing for something, how we treat people sort of when others aren't looking that determine in targets minds, you know, in those moments, why is he doing this? And I think asking yourself, if you say, well, I'm not ready to make that big, specific, courageous act, fine. But are you willing every day to work on whether people see you as caring and competent? That's something mm. you can do all the time. Interesting, because I see a lot of the need for emotional intelligence to play out here. So talk a little bit about the need for EQ, EI, in navigating these approaches. Yeah. So it's so important, you know, the ability to really to do two aspects, right, of emotional intelligence. One is sort of the ability to recognize and regulate your own emotions. And then the, the other, of course, is the ability to recognize and regulate others' emotions. Yeah. And, you know, in these kinds of situations, but both sets of skills, both types of emotional intelligence are so crucial, right? So in yourself, if you don't have the capacity to realize when you're either getting so afraid that you're going to bumble and, you know, uh, cop out immediately, or that you're so angry that your tone of voice and the words you choose are going to offend, you're going to struggle, right? In these kinds of moments, you're going to struggle in general to create the warmth perception on an ongoing basis. Similarly, if you don't have skills and if you don't train yourself to get better at paying attention to facial expressions in the room and body posture in the room yeah. and tone, and you know, there's so many signals we all give off that, that tell people like, is this a good moment or not? Is this person with me or not? And, and you're going to have a really hard time both cultivating relationships over the long run that give you sort of the what we call idiosyncrasy credits, right? Sort of that stock of goodwill. And then you're also just going to have an incredibly hard time in the moment managing those situations. That's so crucial. Jim, the next step in your book is how timing can play a critical role in deciding when to take action. And, and you say we need to choose our battles. Explain. Yeah, so I think there's a couple elements of, of timing and choosing battle. I mean, one is just the question of, how big and important an issue is this to you and or others? You know, depending on our own sort of set points, 
for folks like me, I can notice 42 things a day that irritate me about my work environment and that I could speak up about. If I sort of overdo it on Monday about a couple of relatively trivial things, when the big one for me comes up on Thursday, nobody wants to hear me anymore. So some of it is really getting clarity for yourself. What do you care most about? And don't waste time on other battles that are going to end up having you lose the war around the important issues. And let, I'll give you one quick example. I work with a wonderful black female who is a senior leader at Facebook. And she tells me, look, if you're a black female in senior leadership in corporate America, you face all sorts of microaggressions and macroaggressions all the time. Like it's your lived experience. And she said, if I was going to speak up and you know, get upset every time one of those things happen, she said, I would just become ineffective. Mm-hmm. She said, but what I've realized is that for the world to, I think, evolve to the way I'd like it to be or think it needs to be, we need a lot more Blacks and females in senior positions. And she said, so my rule is when a microaggression or a decision that affects the ability of a Black person or a female to be hired or promoted or equitably treated along that sort of employment chain is at stake, I speak up immediately and every time. Yeah. And I try to let others go. And I think that's such a potent example of sort of clarity around when and why yeah. you speak up. I wonder how how much ha- of this has overlap into another area that you recommend or you, you dedicate a whole chapter to managing our message, right? So what what are some good examples of managing our message so that we act with more courage? As you know, there are many, many specific strategies in the book, but let me just, in the interest of time, let me say the high kind of level strategy yes. that guides everything. Most of us, if we're honest, you know, when we say, oh, I'm going to give a, uh, try to give a persuasive presentation, or I'm going to have a one-on-one conversation, and we sort of prepare for it, or we think about what we're going to say. We make the mistake of crafting up a fancy sounding, you know, a nice sounding pitch, but that pitch is fancy and nice and compelling from our point of view. The problem with that is if you already had control of the resources or the other person's behavior or whatever, you're not having the conversation anyway. So it turns out that it doesn't really matter how you like an issue framed. It matters almost entirely how the person you need to convince likes issues framed. So example might be, you know, I might, and you might, I think, you might be compelled and I might be compelled by somebody saying we should do something because it would be consistent with a mission to bring more humanism, love, compassion, decency into the workplace. And that doing this is an opportunity to be a leader, a first mover in this area. You and I might be really compelled by opportunity framing and mission value framing. But if the person we're pitching to has a finance background and is reporting to a board, whatever, who cares about quarterly earnings, their framing is, what's the economic implication of doing this? What numbers do you got? And is there a threat? Is there some reason we're going to be in trouble if we don't do this? And so the simple choice of economic versus cultural or values framing or opportunity versus threat framing or I versus we framing, those framing decisions, same message, we should do X, can just absolutely help you succeed or lead you to fail. So really know the receiver of the message. Know the receiver. Yeah. And And again, you know, yeah. For most of us, we sit in lots of meetings and or we get lots of other intelligence where like we're not the focal presenter or pitcher. 
we can watch like, oh, when does the boss seem to light up and gravitate and, and say yes? And when does the boss seem to get grumpy and say no or be disinterested? So study that and then frame accordingly. Okay, you had two more steps on how to act more courageously. I know I want to cover real briefly. And one is that we need to manage our emotions. Okay, so with this question, I want you to touch on some of the do's and don'ts of managing our emotion. Maybe start with what not to do. Well, you know, it turns out that on the what not to do, some of the sort of typical folk wisdom actually has a lot of sort of scientific legitimacy. You know, things like, you know, when you you feel your face flush, you know, your your legs tingle in anger, don't speak immediately. The old, you know, count to 10, take five deep breaths. Turns out that's really smart because when <laughs> we are sort of hijacked by our amygdala, the likelihood we say things skillfully, pretty low. So one thing is, you know, whenever possible, don't react immediately in anger. Let's go to the other side and say, well, what's the leadership side of that? Yeah. I have learned even personally that it's simply much easier for leaders to look at somebody and say, oh, he's angry or she's angry. And then sort of just write that person off or leave it at that. But what I'm pretty clear about uh, about anger, especially for men in most cultures, Anger is actually often a sort of the acceptable way of expressing hurt or pain. And, you know, if you think about it from a leadership perspective, if you see somebody acting with anger, you know, rather than just writing them off and concluding they're an angry person, I think the real question you owe it to that person, if you care, and if you're a good leader, you owe it to that person to go and say, you've seemed angry quite a lot recently. What's going on? What needs are not being met? What's not working here and why? And I think, sadly, you know, when you talk about like love in the workplace or just what it would mean to be caring or compassionate in the workplace, when you see somebody angry, but you can't be bothered to try to go understand and unpack why they're angry, that to me is not the sign of care. Mm, If you cared, you'd try to go help. Yeah. Sticking with the, the leadership angle on this. So many times I have coached clients in leadership roles where they don't talk when they should, and instead they go silent or they withdraw or stonewall or just kind of flee the situation when, uh, you know, when they, the first sign of resistance rather than kind of going through the eye of the storm, right? And getting to the other side of maybe a conflict situation, they are more of the, the conflict avoidant type. Speak to that. And tie it to courageous act. Well, I mean, the sad truth is that what you just described actually ends up explaining a whole lot of cowardice rather than than courage. The body's classic responses to fear are either fight, which we've been talking about, or flee or freeze. Mm -hmm. Now, right, in most workplace settings, people don't literally like run out of the room. They don't flee physically. But when you see people just shutting down, that's a sign of sort of freeze behavior. And fleeing is the classic, like, yeah, everybody knows so-and-so's upset, hurting, whatever, but you just absolutely are unwilling to go have that difficult conversation because it would be painful, uncomfortable, people might cry, whatever. And the reality is that if you don't, if you don't learn to recognize in yourself your sort of tendency toward fleeing or freezing, you will not be skillful as a courageous actor because you'll avoid it like the plague. And, you know, on that front, Psychiatrists, psychologists have it exactly right and say, if you think about basic reinforcement, if you're thinking about doing a scary act 
and you're extremely anxious. And then you say, "Ah, I just won't do it. And then you calm down. What you've actually done is you've just reinforced in your brain that the act was dangerous, but avoidance is safe. And so every time you make that choice, you are further reestablishing that the safe, smart thing to do is avoid. And so you'll never get over that until you push past that. Yeah. Now, right from the other perspective, I just think it's just a sad but hard to deny fact. You are not a good leader and you're not even a good friend if you allow your fear to make you avoid difficult situations. Think of like just the silly classic example of you're standing next to a friend, you know, you're about to go give a TED talk or go, you know, speak to 100 people in your company and your fly is open. And your friend standing next to you notices, but doesn't say anything. And later when you say, why didn't, did you notice? Why didn't you say anything? They say, yeah, but I didn't want to make you feel bad or embarrassed. You say, yeah. So instead you let me go out in front of 150 people. Uh, (laughs) That's not care, right? That's not love. And so I think Kim Scott got this right in talking about, you know, ruinous empathy, this storytelling that conflict avoidant people do. They tell themselves that they don't speak candidly because they're loving and caring. And, and actually, that's a complete distortion. It's not loving or caring at all to yeah. not give people the truth. Well, before we come to a close, I want to hear maybe an example, a personal example. Maybe you can include your own in, as one of the data points in your research. Have you been faced with a, a situation where you had to step up and act with more courage? I'm an academic and I have tenure. And so, you know, a lot of people will say, well, there's no possible world in which a guy with lifetime tenure can be courageous. I think my instances of courage, and I think people would largely agree with this. I have, as I said at the outset, I have repeatedly chosen to put myself into circumstances and to teach things and talk about things that frankly make people feel really uncomfortable. I tend to be the guy who will say, I don't care that our current ranking is high. What do the data say about how we could be better? Or I understand this is the tradition, but tradition doesn't always meet current needs well. I tend to be the guy who says, why are we treating you know, certain classes of, of employees a certain way? I actually think on the positive side, I think people would say from an action standpoint, Jim studies something he does a lot of, which is yeah. sort of step up and, and stand out courageously. I think people would also say, and I, I'm sad to have to admit this, people would also say, but his delivery is not always perfect. And so certainly the, you know, the latter half of my book on, on strategies for framing and connecting and bringing people along, you know, those are the things that I have to continue to really work on. You know, Jim, what's interesting about how you framed the answer to that question is that you're a researcher at the forefront of some really important stuff. You are, you know, globally recognized. I'm a practitioner at the forefront of trying to elevate and raise capacity, right? For leaders to shift completely from a mindset of top down to bottom up. And the act of courage for me, and maybe you can relate to this, is that we have detractors and we have doubters and we have skeptics. I'm faced with that all the time. Love and care. Come on, Marcel. We're a business. Or even, you know, I have a servant leadership curriculum. Servant leadership is still seen as too soft when we know that, you know, soft skills are no longer soft skills. They're essential skills. Soft is the new hard. So I'm, I'm constantly having to push back and push back and push back against the worldview that these things are, aren't important enough. But the bottom line is, right? And I'm saying, well, without these things, 
it's going to hurt your bottom line. So, so that's sort of my way of being courageous is it may not happen every day on a, say, one-on-one interaction, but the things that we, you and I are, are putting out in the world, you through research and me, me through thought leadership, writing, podcasts, et cetera, and coaching clients, I'm telling you, I walk out the door, how am I going to do this today? I, I have to step up my game and always think with more courage. And uh, because I know that if I say the wrong thing or, make, or take a wrong step, people are going to start pointing fingers at me and say, see, I told you that these things are, are too soft for us and it's not going to work. I don't know what your thoughts on that, if you can tie that into your, your research on courage. But uh, so that, that's for me being courageous every day. Yeah. Amen. I mean, I, I think for me, what it points to is the distinction between sort of knowing rationally and, and feeling. Rationally, I'm very clear that I agree with, you know, George Bernard Shaw, who said, you know, reasonable people adapt to the world around them. Unreasonable people try to change the world around them. And that's why all change depends on unreasonable people. And I'm clear that, you know, my calling in life is to be, you know, hopefully functionally, but unreasonable. I know rationally that we can't take systems and thought long embedded belief systems. We can't change them without having the courage to challenge them and to push for something that might seem crazy or outlandish at first. I know that rationally. And psychologically, I suspect I'm like the vast majority of human beings. It still hurts if people don't like you all the time. It still hurts if you get excluded. It still hurts if people call you crazy. So, you know, what do I try to do about that? I think one of the things that's really been great for me in the study of courage is uh, I have been able to interview and I continue to interview and meet just unbelievably brave, inspirational, neat human beings. And those, you know, reading and meeting those about those folks and meeting those folks, that keeps me going on those days when I just frankly would rather keep my head down. Good thoughts. Jim, we bring it home with two final questions. It's tradition on the show. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? I was just having a conversation on the way in with a, a friend about something I've been thinking about a lot. And it's about the nature of our organizations. And it was this concept that we were calling tracking. And tracking for you know a psychologist is simply, do you pay attention to you know what's happening in people's families, their big dates, their hurts, their struggles? And do you, tracking meaning, do you check in regularly? Hey, I know it's been six months since your mom died. How are you doing with that? Um, hey, I know it's your anniversary. You know, congratulations, whatever. And just realizing that, you know, despite so many organizations talking about, you know, we're a family environment or we're a caring environment, the number of people, particularly in workplaces, who I think really, truly track with each other is pretty darn low. What's been tugging at me is, you know, what does it mean to say, to talk in all these loving or family or caring ways about organizations, when in reality, often we don't do these even really basic behaviors like tracking. That's kind of been on my mind. <laughs> Great. And finally, you bring us home with one closing remark or a key takeaway from this conversation that will keep us inspired. So the thing I guess I haven't said really directly is there is no personality trait associated um, heavily with courageous action. It's not about extroversion or assertiveness. It's not about being 
a male or a female or tall or this or that. It's just not. I've studied way too many people and I can tell you they vary on any dimension you can name. And so it truly is a choice. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to decide, am I going to choose to prepare myself or not? And, And I'll leave you with this thought, which I just really love, which for me indicates why it is about everyday choices to get ready, to practice. The late Eric Kale, colonel in the U.S. military, said, you know, hoping or thinking you'll be courageous in the critical 30 seconds when you haven't been for the last 10 years is a cowardly approach. Hmm. Because he says, you know, you can't be something sort of in the flashes of the extreme that you haven't spent the last years being. I just think that says it exactly right. If you want to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I know I do the right thing or I will do the right thing when the moment comes, then you better be working at it every day. Yeah. Jim, it's been an enlightening conversation. And if people want to connect with you and learn more about you, where can they go? So it'd be great if they find me on LinkedIn. They also could just go to Jim Dietert, D-E-T-E-R-T, jimdietert.com. My website talks a lot about my book, my my work with organizations and a lot of other things I think people will find useful. The book, again, is called Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work. Pick it up wherever books are sold and get that guide that Jim talked about. And sir, it's been an honor. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Join the conversation and comment on this episode with hashtag Love in Action Podcast. And look for my show notes on my website marcelschwantes.com. I'll be sure to include Jim's resources for you to connect with him. I'm coming right back as I always do with my one action item from this conversation to help you become a better leader. So I'll leave you with this. Yes, courage can be risky, but it's also hugely important, not only for us, if our values are being violated, but also important to those around us, you know, because we want to protect other people and we want to help solve problems and we definitely want to avert disasters. So we can do all that by rising up and being more courageous. Integrity doesn't always win, but if you operate through integrity and principle and respect and dignity and you value human beings, all human beings, you have an obligation to step up and take action to break down the power structures that hold us back. When you do and act courageously, you inspire others to act more courageously. That wraps it up. Thank you, Love and Action Tribe, for joining the conversation. And please don't forget to share this episode far and wide. And finally, hey, we're always looking for business sponsors to help us grow. If interested, You can reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the love in action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.